If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We continue our study in Matthew chapter 7, the third and final part of the Sermon on the Mount. As we saw last week in this sermon, Jesus is addressing his disciples, that is, those who follow him. And he describes what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, what it means to be a child of God, a child in the family of God. Thus, in the Lord's Prayer, we begin our Father. Jesus speaks of our character and the Beatitudes. And following that, he speaks of our influence, that we are to be salt and light, our behavior, that our practices, you know, whatever... Whatever it is that we have been taught in Scripture, that is what we are to do and to teach others to do. And then our behavior, our piety, that when we give to those who are in need, not to make a show or not to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. Um, When we pray, we are to pray in private. And then our ambition, that we are not to set up treasure here on earth, but to set up treasures in heaven. And it ends with the words, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Now we come to chapter 7, and Jesus turns to the matter of relationships. As I said last week, Christian counterculture is not an individualistic affair, but a communal matter. And so in discussing relationships, Jesus begins with those within the community. Jesus knew very well that the Christian community, the church, the family of God would not be perfect, seeing as it's made up of sinners, of fallen human beings who are in the process, we are in the process of being redeemed and being recreated in his image. What we saw last week, how are we supposed to behave toward a fellow member who has misbehaved? If we have a brother or a sister who has not done what is right, what are we to do? Does Jesus have instructions? about discipline within the community. We may, in fact, discern a fault in our brother and sister, but we have a responsibility to help and not to judge harshly. And then in what is seemingly a natural move, Jesus moves from our relationships to our brothers and sisters to today we will look at our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And one might say, Damon, how do you see this as a natural seemingly natural progression. Um, Our duty of discrimination, that is not judging others, not casting pearls before swine, being helpful without being hypocritical, is something we cannot do without divine grace. We simply cannot. But as with the first verse of this chapter is often misunderstood, so also is the first verse of our text today. Let's begin reading in verse number 7 and read through verse number 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who finds, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be open. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
Just a quick note before we move on. In the King James Version and the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, rather than good gifts, it has good things. Um, I actually like the NIV good gifts because what we have has been, in fact, given as gift. This is the famous Ask passage. And I remember seeing a poster when I was a teenager, so it was a long time ago. Someone had made a poster with this Ask, Seek, and Knock. And the way that they had arranged it, you realize that the first letter of each word spelled out ask. Ask, seek, knock, A-S-K. I think a good way for us to remember it. But what did Jesus intend by this? I think it's a good place for us to start to recognize that Jesus is speaking of prayer. We are to ask, we are to seek, we are to knock in prayer to our Heavenly Father. I pointed out that the Sermon on the Mount is a package deal. That's not usually the way people understand it. They pick and choose different parts and then sort of run with that and instead of recognizing that it all comes together. So we should not be surprised that this is not the first time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has taught on prayer. In chapter 5, he says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In chapter 6, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. And then we have what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Thus far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has warned against praying like the Pharisees, that is to be seen by people, his hypocrisy, and to not pray like the pagans, who think that if they keep repeating these certain words, that they will in fact get what they want. Jesus has instructed us on private prayer. He has given us a model prayer. This is how we should pray. Now in chapter 7, Jesus gives us commands regarding prayer. You say commands? Um, Ask, seek, and knock in the Greek are all imperatives. These are commands. These aren't, yeah, you should ask or it'd be nice if you would seek. These are commands. Jesus is telling those who are his followers, this is what you must do. You must ask, you must seek, you must knock. But why give commands? Why not simply say, you know, you all, you should probably pray and and we would be able to deal with it then. Um, They are, in fact, commands. And some have suggested, I don't know how far I'd go with it, they are on a scale of, uh, ascending scale of urgency. That you might uh, imagine a child ask, mom, where is this? And not finding the mom will then go and seek the mom and not being able to find will then perhaps knock on a door if mom is behind a certain door in a certain room. Um, In any case, these are three commands. Jesus actively encourages us, he commands us to pray, and he gives us gracious promises. As one writer put it, nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we shall be heard. Would we pray if, in fact, we knew that we, wouldn't, we might not be heard? Martin Luther wrote, He knows that we are timid and shy, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. 
We think that God is so great and we are so tiny that we do not dare to pray. That is why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts, to remove our doubts, and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. So we have three commands. By the way, this follows what we saw in verse number one, do not judge, also an imperative, also a command. And then we are given three promises as well. In verse number eight, everyone who asks receives, he who uh, seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. And finally, we're given a parable to illustrate the promises. That which of you, if you have a son and he asks for bread, you give him a stone. If he asks for fish, you give him a snake, and so on. But confronted with all of these commands and promises, there are objections that people raise to the matter of prayer. And I think we should deal with them. First of all, it is argued that prayer is unseemly or unbecoming, inappropriate. That is, it, it gives us a false picture of our Father in heaven. It implies that he needs to be told what in fact it is that we lack, or perhaps that he needs to be bullied into giving us what we want. In the previous chapter, in chapter 6, Jesus said, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. To answer this objection, I would suggest that the reason we are to ask, seek, and knock is not because he is ignorant until we inform him, and it is not because he is reluctant unless we persuade him or pester him until he gives in. The reason that we are to pray lies not with God. Okay? The question isn't whether or not he is ready to give. The question is if we are ready to receive. One commentator put it, the Heavenly Father never spoils his children. He does not shower us with gifts whether we want them or not, whether we are ready for them or not. Instead, he waits for us to recognize our need and then turn to him in humility. Prayer is not inappropriate. Um, Years ago, um, we had someone visiting here who was quite offended by the notion that you would ask God for anything, and particularly for yourself. But this is, in fact, what the Father himself has chosen, for us to express our conscious need of him and those things that we need. Our humble dependence upon him is reflected in our prayer. The second objection is that prayer is unnecessary. And I think this objection comes more from experience than it does from theology. I think there are at least two aspects to this. One is positive, one is negative. On the positive side, As we've experienced here in this congregation, um, we have experienced God's answer to prayers, which we have not prayed. That we hadn't even got to the point yet to pray for something, and yet God answered our prayers. And so one would say, well, it's really not necessary. God will give us the things that we need. In the midst of our great difficulties, or perhaps just sheer forgetfulness, either sloth or despair, we find that our Father has, in fact, been watching over us. We have forgotten to pray. We have forgotten to ask, to seek, to knock. But he knows what we need, and he, in fact, has worked and intervened in our lives. 
That's the positive side. On the negative side, as one writer put it, thoughtful Christians look around and see lots of people getting along fine without prayer. Indeed, they seem to receive without prayer the very things we receive with it. They get what they need by working for it, not by praying for it. So a farmer gets a good crop by labor, not by prayer. A family balances its budget by working hard and earning, keeping track of what they've earned, and so on. The writer continues, in thinking about this question, we need to distinguish between the gifts of God as creator and his gifts as father, between his creation gifts and his redemption gifts. Jesus said this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. I read this earlier. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. His creation gifts are not dependent upon our prayers. Whether people acknowledge him or not, it still rains on them. The sun shines on them, whether they know that God is there, whether they acknowledge him, or even if they have turned against him in rebellion. God's redemption gifts are quite different. He doesn't bestow or give salvation on all alike. In Romans 10, Paul writes, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the redemption gifts applies to those which the Father has given to his children, those who have called on the name of the Lord. And now I think we begin to get to the heart of the matter, something that we've sort of danced around at this point. How do we define the good gifts of of verse number 11, or the good things, as the ESV has it? How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I would suggest to you that this does not refer primarily to physical or material blessings, but to those things which are a part of our lives as the children of God. Forgiveness, deliverance from evil, peace, faith, hope, love. In Luke's version of this sermon, actually it's another sermon given on a different occasion, different location, we hear, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is not to say that we shouldn't pray for our daily bread, for physical sustenance. Give us this day our daily bread. This is an appropriate prayer. It is interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, we find both creation gifts and redemption gifts brought together. In fact, in the same breath that our daily bread is a creation gift, forgiveness, and forgive us our trespasses. Creation gift, redemption gift. Some might say, well, that, Damon, that doesn't seem right. It seems like we should have like a prayer for creation gifts and a prayer for redemption gifts, those things we receive as Christians. I would suggest that we pray for our daily bread, not because we're afraid of starving, 
Remember that there are billions of people who do get their daily bread without praying. There are many who do not. We pray for our daily bread because we know that ultimately it comes from God. We acknowledge that as the creator, he provides creation gifts. And as his children, we acknowledge our physical dependence upon him. We pray for forgiveness and deliverance because these gifts are given to those who seek, those who ask, those who knock. So in a double negative, I would say prayer is not unnecessary. The third reason why people object to prayer, it's a corollary of the second, is they think it is unproductive. Okay. People argue that prayer is unnecessary because you know, people have food without praying to God. People have clothing, they have jobs, they have health, they don't ever pray. So why should we pray? Um, on the other side, people say, well, no, we shouldn't pray because, you know, it doesn't work. I prayed to God for something and, and it didn't happen. And so prayer is, in fact, unproductive. Simply put, people would say, prayer does not work. This is the familiar phrase that we sang in our hymn today. Give me the patience of unanswered prayer. Some would say that what Jesus says in these verses is not true. Ask, you'll receive. No, I didn't. Seek, you'll find. No, I didn't. Knock, the door will be open. No, it wasn't. I did not get the things I asked for. But think for a moment. When you read our text, do you imagine it to be absolute? That anything you ask for will be given to you. That anything you seek you will find and any door that you knock on will be open to you. Is this some type of magical formula? Is prayer some type of magic wand? Is it sort of the rubbing of the lamp, like Aladdin? We are Aladdin and God is our genie. Is knocking the same, the equivalent of saying open sesame? In Bob Dylan's song, When You're Gonna Wake Up, it opens with the line, God don't make promises that he don't keep. It's like, oh, that sounds like the ask verse, okay? But later in the song, he writes, do you ever wonder just what God requires? Do you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires? Think for a moment, or maybe longer. If our text were absolute, prayer would put an absolute strain, an impossible strain on every Christian if we knew that we would get whatever we prayed for. One writer put it this way, if it were the case that whatever we ask, God was pledged to give, then I for one would never pray again. Because I do not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. And I think if you would consider it, you will agree it would impose an intolerable, intolerable burden on frail human wisdom if by his prayer promises God was pledged to give whatever we ask, when we ask it, and exactly the terms we ask. How could we bear the burden? How 
Have you ever thought, have you ever been so grateful that God did not in fact answer a particular prayer that you prayed? In contrast to earthly parents who are fallen and infallible, our Heavenly Father is good and he gives only good gifts to his children. He is wise. He knows which gifts are good and which ones are not. And so Jesus gives us a parable here. He tells his listeners that a parent would never give a stone if the child asked for bread. A parent would never give uh, a snake if the child asked for fish. It's interesting that Jesus tells this parable at this point. The relation of a parent to a child is one of the most precious in human experience. A parent's heart is tuned to its child and loves, lives to help it. And Jesus appeals to it to reinforce what he's just said. But he does this in two ways, which I would argue are a bit uncomfortable. It's verse number 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? First, it's uncomfortable because Jesus refers to his listeners as evil. Uh, it must have been a shock to his original listeners. I think it certainly would shock us today. It might even in some quarters come under the category of hate speech to refer to someone as evil. I think Jesus lets you know, his listeners know what he thought of human nature, of original sin. It's a sober estimate. And you will notice that in contrast to other passages, he doesn't say we, but you. You who are fallen, you who are sinners. Okay. Secondly, this is a contrast, not a comparison. Remember in school, the compare and contrast questions? Um, it's much more a how much more argument um, between evil parents and a good father in heaven. It's from the lesser to the greater. We may miss something here, and we need to stop because we've been go saying it over and over and from Beatitudes through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a certain word that we just sort of gloss over, and the word is father. Before and during Jesus' time, no Jew would ever address God as father. It's far too personal, far too intimate. However, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus has used to describe God. More than a dozen times, including the Lord's Prayer up to this point, Jesus refers to God as Father. And his point here is that God as Father gives good gifts to his children. But what if a child asks, either through ignorance or folly, yeah, I'd like to have a stone to eat or a snake instead of fish. What then? Well, only an extremely irresponsible parent would in fact give in to that wish, to that request. Okay. The majority of parents who are wise and loving would say, no child, here is some bread, here is some fish, not a stone or a snake. In the same way, our Heavenly Father will not grant us something that is harmful, even if we ask urgently and repeatedly for it. 
He does that which is good for us, for others, either directly or indirectly. And we should be grateful that he does not always do as we ask. One pastor put it this way, I thank God that he is not prepared to do anything that I may chance to ask him. I am profoundly grateful to God that he did not grant me certain things for which I asked and that he shut certain doors in my face. People have said in the past, don't ask for this, don't say that because God will do it. Such a negative view of our good heavenly father who gives good gifts. If you look at it, this passage is rather simple. It presents prayer as something that is simplicity itself. Ask, seek, and not. We should consider that it presupposes that we have faith, that we trust God and that we are humble, and that we, in fact, trust in his goodness and his wisdom. And we should be humble enough to know that he knows far better than we do. Let me just say, on a side, it doesn't mean that we cannot ask for things. It does not mean that we cannot ask for things more than once, urgently, repeatedly. What it does tell us, though, is that God knows far better than we do. And when we pray, we should acknowledge that. And then verse number 12. And, you know, preparing us, I'm like, that maybe should be a from a different sermon. But I think, in fact, it fits together. Having dealt with our relationship to our brothers and sisters, our relationship to God, he now deals with our relationship to all people. Verse number 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. I want to consider this verse primarily because it begins with the word so, which means it's connected to what has come previously. There is a connection. A lot has been made of this verse. It's been called the golden rule, at least the first part of it, not the part about the law and the prophets, because that would mean we'd accept scripture. Um, but a lot has been made of the fact that we find this in other systems of belief, like from Confucius, for example, uh, from the Stoics, from others. However, interestingly enough, they put it in the negative. So it, uh, it is attributed to Confucius, do not do to others what you would not wish done to yourself. Even in the Apocrypha, uh, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. Rabbi Hillel, a famous rabbi, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. These variations have been called the silver rule. You know, this is the golden rule, do unto others, and the silver rule is do not do unto others what you wouldn't want, would, you, would not want done to you. Um, the silver rule is a variation and somewhat an inversion of the golden rule. It has its own deficiencies as it only requires individuals not to harm others. doesn't ask people to engage in personal behavior or in positive behavior. And here we find the great difference between what Jesus taught and what other systems of belief have put forward. We who are a part of the kingdom, the family of God, are to treat those who are outside the kingdom, those who are not our brothers and sisters, with grace and love. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, we will hear this put in a different way. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus gives us this simple rule. The way that we look to ourselves, we should treat others. It's a simple rule. And as one writer put it, it frees us from the rule of experts. Experts like, this is how you should behave in this, and this is how you should behave in this situation, and give us all these rules. Now, here's a simple rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's not a glib motto, words to live by. It, in fact, sums up the law and the prophets. Everything we see in Scripture up to this point is summed up in this, this rule, this law. We are to do to others as we would have them do to us. Our text opens with three commands. Ask, seek, and knock. Why? Why does Jesus do this? And, and why at this point in the sermon? I will suggest three reasons in closing. As one catechism put it, it's actually Luther's large catechism, by this commandment he makes plain that he will not thrust us aside or cast us out because we are sinners. We should take verse number seven in a very positive light. The fact that Jesus tells us that we are to ask, seek, and knock, in fact, tells us that we have the privilege and the right to come to the Heavenly Father to ask and to seek and to knock. Luther, who was an Augustinian monk before he was converted, said that when he was in the monastery, he was never taught to ask in prayer. Never taught to ask. And when he, the grace of God came into his life, um, he's like, yes. I can ask. So the first reason why we're told to do this um, is so that we will do it. But to be honest with you, I don't think this is a problem in the church today. Um, I suspect that asking in prayer is something that many churches assume to be a right, that they can ask for anything and everything, and God will give it to them. The second reason why I have included verse number 12 in with this is that we cannot obey what we're told in these verses. Verse number one, do not judge. Verse number 12, do unto others. We cannot do these things apart from the work of our Father in heaven in our lives. And so what we are to ask for, what we are to seek, what we are to knock on the door, to have the door open to us, so that we may receive, we may find, the door may be open, is that we can do the things we're commanded to do. That we would not be hypocritical. That we wouldn't sort of pick at faults in others when in fact there's huge, there's a plank, there's a beam in our eye. And it's only by God's grace that we won't do what we shouldn't do. We will be judgmental apart from God's grace. We won't do to others as we would have them to do us apart from God's grace. And I think people would disagree. Like, Damon, no, I, I, I can do this. I've, I've got this. I, I will not judge other people harshly. And I will do unto others as I would have them do unto you. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think so. I think that this requires an ongoing work of God's grace in our lives. That left to our own devices, we in fact will be judgmental, we will exalt ourselves over others, and we really won't treat other people as we should. 
I think we will take more of a silver rule than a golden rule path to life. So when we receive, when we find, when the doors open, what do we find? When God opens the door to us, what, what do we see there? What is the answer to our prayer? Grace. Grace. It is God's grace. I think if, in fact, we were to be given a list of things, or if I were to ask you to write out a list, um, what are the important things to pray for? I'm not sure that grace would be at the top of our list. We pray for our health, the health of others, pray for safety, um, that God would provide our daily bread, all these other, and maybe down toward the bottom of the list we might say grace. And I think Jesus would say no, no, no. It's at the top of the list. We are to ask and seek and find, you know, or seek and knock, because otherwise we will be these wretched judges, these hypocrites, who are always picking at the faults of others and ignoring the sin in our lives. And we will not treat those outside the family of God as we should. We won't treat our brothers and sisters well. We won't treat those outside the family well. Verse number seven is about grace, that we should ask, seek, and knock. And the third reason I think that Jesus tells us, it gives us these three commands, is that we should pray. It is one of the great ironies, paradoxes, whatever word you would use, that we don't pray. We don't pray. It's a wonderful privilege. It's made possible through the Lord Jesus. He intercedes for us. The Spirit's there with groanings which cannot be uttered. Um, And yet, I will not be judgmental, but I would suggest that we do not pray as we should. It's one of the greatest privileges given to us as the children of God, and we don't do it. I think perhaps what we should ask and seek and knock on the door for is that we would be given the grace to pray as we should. Jesus wants us to pray. He gives us a model prayer. He tells us, don't be like the pagans. Don't be like the Pharisees. He gives us all these instructions. And then he gives us commands. It's not like, okay, guys, I think you should pray. He tells us, absolutely must pray. And yet we don't. May we pray for God's grace in our lives that we would pray as we should. This wonderful gift, a communication between father and child, between a child and his or her father, this has been given to us. Conversation, dialogue. As we've seen oftentimes in the various sermons, prayer is a dialogue in which God begins the conversation. See, oftentimes we feel uh, the, the need, the responsibility, the burden. Oh, I've, I've got to start this conversation with God. No, it's the other way around. God has already spoken to us in his word, in our lives, in our circumstances. And we respond in prayer. And we ask for grace. 
we seek grace. We knock on the door. We ask God to give us the good gift of grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, here at the end of the sermon, we do as commanded. We pray, but we would freely confess that we do not pray as we should. And oftentimes when we do pray, our prayers tend to be quite selfish. We thank you that, in fact, we can ask you for things. Like our daily bread, our sustenance, health, safety. But there's something far greater than that, and that is grace. We thank you, our Father, that you are our Heavenly Father, a Father who gives good gifts. as a parent here on earth, though fallen, would care for a child, you, our Heavenly Father, care deeply, deeply for us. You speak to us, we don't always listen. You speak to us, we do not always respond in prayer. to not be judgmental, to not be hypocrites, to treat others as we would have them to treat us. It's just not something that comes naturally to us. We are in desperate need every moment of your grace. And I thank you, Father, that you do in fact give us grace. Grace upon grace. May we look to you as your children and know that you give good gifts. Forgive us of our evil thoughts of you when you've not answered our prayers the way that we wanted, when we wanted. Only later to realize that it was a great blessing and grace that you did not answer our prayers. We would have made a wreck of our lives, in fact, if you had answered our prayers. But as a good parent, you treat us gently. You don't spoil us. We thank you that you love us. May we respond in love as well. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you, the first day of a new week. May your spirit go with us, not only as we leave this place, but through each day of this week. May we have a sense of your presence. Give us wisdom and grace as we deal with others. Again, we thank you for your love, a love which you demonstrated supremely by giving us your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.